0: You know, many times we look at security topics in isolation, but the truth is we need progress on many fronts to advance security across the sector, and the actions that we talked about today are just really pieces of a larger effort to continue enhancing
1: our our sector's security and, and resilience. Welcome to Electric Perspectives. A podcast that explores how America's electric companies are working to deliver the reliable, affordable, secure, and clean energy that powers our economy and our everyday lives. The show is brought to you by EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, which represents all U.S. investor-owned electric companies. I'm your host, Brian Reel. The electric power sector works with the government and the private sector to strengthen our approach to resilience. Every day, We are working to enhance grid security and ensure vigilance in the face of evolving threats. As global supply chain challenges continue to impact industries, electric companies also are focused on ensuring they have the resources they need to deliver resilient clean energy to customers. On today's episode, we are joined by Bill Furman, President and CEO of Berkshire Hathaway Energy and co-chair of the Electricity Subsector Coordinating Council and Scott Aronson, EEI's Senior Vice President of Security and Preparedness to discuss how electric companies are working with our government and industry partners to bolster supply chain resilience, the potential value of an energy sector industrial base to increase supply chain security and more. Bill and Scott, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having us, appreciate it. So. Scott, a quick question for you to start. I know that we've mentioned the ESCC on previous episodes, but can you provide just a quick overview for our listeners and what role the ESCC plays
2: in supply chains? Yeah, thanks, Brian. It's great to be on and good to talk about this important, timely topic. So the ESCC, the Electric Sector Coordinating Council, uh, brings industry and government together to prepare for and respond to, frankly, all threats, right? It started because of cyber and physical threats to critical infrastructure, Uh, but has evolved to deal with storms, wildfires, pandemics, uh, it turns out. Uh, And with respect to supply chains, all uh, supply chains factor into each of those threats. Uh, The ability to uh, keep the lights on through extraordinary circumstances uh, and bringing government capabilities and industry capabilities together uh, so that we can uh, be prepared uh, for all of these uh, acts of war and acts of God uh, that critical infrastructure providers face.
1: And Bill, thank you again for joining us. Uh, You have a really interesting vantage point as uh, the head of Berkshire Hathaway Energy, the family of electric companies and the customers you serve really represent mid-American energy, NB Energy, Rocky Mountain Power and Pacific Power serving customers throughout the Western and Midwest United States. So you have a pretty incredible vantage point of how companies are being impacted by the global supply chain challenges. And I'd be interested in what are some examples of supply chain challenges that are impacting your companies and probably similarly EI's member companies. And what are some of the risks that we're facing as a result? Yeah, thanks, Brian,
0: and really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today and, and and obviously enjoy having the conversation with yourself and Scott. EEI plays a fundamental role in, in bringing everybody together and, and keeping us aligned with our unity effort and, and unity of message as, as events go on, and clearly supply chain is one of those events. The biggest challenge for us at this time is really the long lead times for critical components and that would include such things as transformers, conductors, smart meters, and even basics uh, that we have to go try and acquire uh, from vendors that in the past have delivered in a few weeks and now it's many months and These challenges really put reliability at risk and can impact our industry storm and wildfire response and ultimately slow the clean energy transformation down at a time when we really need to keep reducing carbon emissions and and increasing renewable usage. An example of this would be, for instance, hurricanes. Uh, At this point in time, uh, we're going through a pretty significant inventory review to see Uh, who has what for transformers, who has what for conductor. And as we always do with our uh, approach to uh, helping each other and providing mutual support. Uh, we are looking to see that if we do have events that we've got um, an appropriate amount of equipment that we can use. Uh, and I will say that that is uh, certainly impacting our critical infrastructure uh, as we go along and and look at what we have available to us. Uh, we need strong, trusted equipment to operate. And uh, with where we're at in supply chain today, that's something that is uh, really staying in focus
1: for for major companies. And one piece too, we all were recently at EEI 2022, our annual meeting in Orlando, and I know that you were involved with uh, leading a number of discussions with some senior government officials. Um, I know some of the attendees there were Jen Easterly, the Director of CISO, with Secretary Granholm, the, the Secretary of Energy. And how important is it to also be having some of these conversations with our government partners?
0: It's critical. You know, we have such a strong partnership with our government partners and, and in particular DOE and, and DHS. Uh, they can help us and support us and with the Defense Production Act that's that's coming in and communications and and really the bully pulpit to send the message out uh, to work with uh, the vendors and uh, the partnership today that we have with government is exponentially better than it's than it's ever been in my in my opinion. Scott's been around a little longer in all of these types of things, but at least from what I've seen over the past 24 to 36 months, that partnership is very very strong and and having them with us uh, in these events. again, unity of effort, unity of message uh, really helps us. Uh, do what we need to do to serve our customers in in
1: in these times. So Scott, uh, we've heard a little bit about some of the challenges that companies are facing. So what are the ESCC and really the electric power industry at large doing about these challenges?
2: Yeah, so I mean, Bill hit it, right? We, we can say, and we, we do and should, unity of effort, unity of message. But let's dig down into what that really means. And so actually, I'm going to back up a little bit. First, all, I'm going to agree completely with Bill that the uh, partnership these days uh, is better than it's ever been. And I think that's because of a recognition that critical infrastructure providers, while extraordinary at what they do to keep the lights on and the gas flowing, uh, also need uh, support from our federal partners. Uh, government has certain capabilities, certain authorities, certain responsibilities that the electric power sector simply doesn't have. Uh, and so unifying that effort and unifying that message uh, between and among all of the critical infrastructure providers, uh, all of our suppliers and our government partners really is key. So backing up and, and maybe using the pandemic uh, as an example, pandemics, you know, kind of un- unfortunately uh, are great thought exercises when it comes to uh, business continuity. Uh, that is, it's a great thought exercise until it actually happens. But but if you think about it, a pandemic deprives you of supply chains, a pandemic deprives you of uh, certain Uh, people of of certain uh, abilities to operate. And so you have to be able to operate through that. And so early on in the pandemic, the ESCC banded together to look over the horizon at all the threats that we might be facing. How do you operate during a pandemic? How do you operate safely? How do you have access to those supply chains and to those facilities and to those people uh, that you need to remain operational? If you extrapolate that to today with the supply chain shortages that we are facing, it's that ability to convene manufacturers so that we can send that demand signal. It's that ability to leverage those government authorities, the Defense Production Act uh, and other waivers and uh, things that the government can do to expedite things through ports to prioritize uh, the electric power sector uh, with respect to uh, getting the equipment that we need as quickly as possible uh, to prepare for storms and fires that we know we are going to see this year so that we have uh, that material and equipment ready to go or at minimum, ready to share between and among uh, electric companies. And so the ESCC through leaders like Bill has convened a tiger team uh, to look at all of those components, right? What do we need right now to be prepared for storm and wildfire season? What do we need from government as far as their authorities and capabilities, and let's get those greased so that we're not doing it for the first time when a real challenge is at our doorstep. Uh, and let's bring those manufacturers to the table, understand what their gating items are so that we can be better prepared uh, and they can be better prepared uh, to provide us the equipment that we need uh, when the time comes.
1: So you say the gating items for the manufacturers, do you know, is it a sense of uh, there's a worker shortage, there's a raw material shortage, or is every company really being impacted a little differently?
2: So the answer always is it depends, but I think you, anytime you talk about supply chains, it's really it's really important to talk about it in terms of supply and demand, right? Well, supplies are low for some of the reasons you mentioned, whether it's labor shortages, whether it's delivery challenges, whether it's raw material issues, whether it's issues related to the pandemic, issues related to the war in Eastern Europe. There are any number of uh, things that are limiting supplies right now. And then on the other side, you look at demand. Again, we've talked about storm and wildfire season. We know we're going to need material and equipment to put the system back together. Uh, you know, looking at the investments that companies are making last year, uh, EEI, number of companies spent 140 billion dollars in capital expenditures to update and continue to modernize uh, the the energy grid. Uh, you look at IIJA, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that was recently passed. That is creating a whole a lot more demand uh, for material and equipment and on and on and on. So supply and demand are are out of sync right now. Uh, and that does pose a problem both to uh, our ability to respond when, when events happen uh, and just to do some of the basic blocking and tackling that Bill was talking about uh, to keep the system operational. And maybe
1: one more quick question for you, Scott, uh, before uh, we pivot a little bit. But we're also coming off a couple of really historic hurricane and wildfire seasons. I don't recall the numbers, maybe you do, of just how destructive Ida was to the infrastructure.
2: Yeah, Ida is a great example. You know, it's not necessarily how we measure the uh, impact of storms, but anecdotally, and from people who have been around the industry a lot longer than I have, it was the most impactful storm from an infrastructure standpoint that we've ever seen. More than 30,000 poles, thousands of miles worth of conductor, and then all of the things that go on those poles, whether it's cross arms and hardware and all the transformers. So that sort of impact absolutely had an impact on companies' storm stock Uh, But it also was an opportunity for companies to talk to each other and see how can we better share this material and equipment. So actually going into last season, even before Ida hit, uh, EEI and its members were building out a material mutual assistance capability. So mutual assistance is when electric companies from all over North America send uh, people and equipment to the impacted area. Uh, after a storm or a fire, uh, now we're looking at how we can more effectively and efficiently share material uh, so that we don't end up in a situation where restoration is happening uh, and we don't have the equipment and the material to work with. It's one of the things that this industry does extremely well is is work collaboratively. This is one big machine, the energy grid of North America and every company, whether an investor owned electric company like EEI's members, or the, or the cooperatives or the municipals, we all work together to get that system restored uh, for the customers and communities that we are privileged to serve.
1: So we know the electric power industry always is planning for different contingencies and they're doing different simulations and exercises. Bill, what are some strategies that electric companies might have in place now, knowing that there might be some materials that they're not going to be able to get in the coming weeks?
0: Well, as we've touched on already a little bit, it's really about mutual assistance. And as we went through the meetings at, at EEI, uh, there's an effort to essentially do an inventory review of all of the member companies to see who has what. And uh, once we have that, and when we have an event, uh, such as Scott, raised as uh, hurricanes. Uh, then we look at sharing of equipment, prioritizing emergency response, and really looking for creative solutions to solve whatever problems in front of us. Uh, if we all work together, we've got an incredible amount of, of uh, resources that we can bring to bear uh, on a mutual aid type of situation. And uh, with that in place, Uh, we have a much better opportunity to uh, restore faster uh, for the customers.
1: And the grid really grew up in fits and starts, and it's really just a a modern marvel of innovation. But part of that must mean that companies don't necessarily all use the same components. And I think Scott got to this a little bit about the inventory, but Bill, I assume that the equipment that your companies use may not be one for one with every other company in the country.
0: That's spot on. And That's one of the challenges that always comes to bear when you're trying to solve problems fast, but I'd also say that engineers can be really creative when it comes to taking equipment that maybe isn't perfect, but is Uh, suitable for a situation, even if it's for a short period of time that we can make either modifications on the system or we can operate it in a different manner for some period of time that maybe isn't perfect, but is, is operational.
2: Yeah, I'll just pick up on that, uh, Brian, we're looking at some of the supply chain challenges right now uh, in both near term, what immediately needs to be done again, preparing for storm and wildfire season, for example, and uh, stockpiling equipment and just being prepared to share. Uh, working with manufacturers, government, et cetera, but then also looking, you know, medium and long term. And uh, as you mentioned, the grid did grow up in kind of fits and starts uh, through, uh, you know, the last hundred plus years. And uh, decisions were made before uh, companies were connected to each other to have certain voltage classes or to have certain kinds of equipment. And the lack of standardization. On the one hand, uh, I've, I've heard, you know, kind of provides some um, uh, biodiversity, which in and of itself is uh, a defense mechanism for the grid, uh, but it also provides some real complications. As creative as creatives, engineers can be, uh, I think the engineers would like to see a little bit more standardization across the system. Uh, and so that's something that as we look over the horizon, medium and long term, uh, there are opportunities to maybe be a little bit more thoughtful for purposes of resilience uh, and the ability to- to share more effectively across the industry, uh, finding some ways to standardize some of those uh, completely uh, unstandardized uh, uh, systems.
1: And Bill, you had authored a recent column for EEI's Electric Perspectives magazine uh, titled Supply Chain Resilience, the Energy Sector Base. I know you touched a little bit about the industrial sector And some of the options there, but what are some of the steps that we might want to consider taking as we look to have kind of a more secure domestic manufacturing capacity here in the US.
0: Well, we really need to start by um, establishing some sort of mechanism to provide a uh, secure environment uh, that goes beyond uh, contractual agreements, you know, basically at this point in time, utilities and vendors manufacturers need to have very frank discussions on how to progress security and availability of the devices in our energy systems. And one idea to facilitate that discussion was the development of the energy sector industrial base. Uh, DOE collected comments on the concept earlier this year. And for those who aren't familiar with it, the closest corollary would be the defense industrial base, which is where the government establishes benchmarks for the security of companies providing defense mission support. While there's considerable differences between the sectors, there are certainly some shared concepts that can be applied within the the energy industry. And we could leverage the ESCC to create that engagement. But at the end of the day, no matter what form this exchange takes, creating dialogue between utilities and suppliers will be the fastest way towards improving the supply chain security and and resilience. And and again, with the support of our government partners and the willingness of our, our suppliers uh, we have started this process, and and we're beginning to have these discussions. While we're we're early in this process,
1: we are seeing good engagement. And we've been talking a lot about physical infrastructure uh, so far, but do we consider software to also be part of the supply chain? I know there's been a lot of headline catching news over the past year with the SolarWinds platform and uh, the Log4J exploit, uh, some of the software. So when we're talking about securing our supply chains, does software and cyber come into that conversation as well?
0: Absolutely. Um, one of the frustrating parts about the supply chain topic for me is the lack of common terminology and and a framework around what we're actually talking about. Um, this framework is, is really essential for those critical conversations with vendors and manufacturers that I previously mentioned. And for me, software code and code libraries like log 4 j are really the same as the raw materials that are combined to build the devices that we put Uh, onto our systems and in our environment. Uh, Software engineers are writing the code that serves as the foundation of the software, and we're dependent on this software to help us run our systems, and the code must be uh, secure just like the device itself needs to be built uh, securely. And while we may need to address it differently than raw materials for our devices, we still need to account for the security of software, and, and that starts with the code. And again, I go back to the collaboration that we have with our government partners and uh, in particular, I want to call out uh, Jen Easterly and the work she's doing with the, the JCDC and, and really creating this hub uh, where we're going to be able to share insights and, and uh, information with our government partners and, and then quickly get actionable uh, information back that we can use to more rapidly uh, work on securing our systems.
1: And I think it's safe to say, just seeing the level of CEO engagement that EEI gets, as well as the ESCC, that this isn't just a compartmentalized issue that the operations folks are, are working on at a daily basis. It seems like these really are top priorities, even at the CEO level.
0: They are absolutely top priorities at the CEO level, and uh, in fact, at the, the recent Uh, EEI meeting we had a couple of weeks ago, there was significant CEO engagement on all of these topics, and we had great representation from our government partners, as as you noted earlier, Secretary Granholm was there. Uh, Jen Easterly was there. We had a uh, almost an entire morning of discussions with with Jen on these topics, and had significant engagement by uh, the CEO community. And so, I take pride in our industry that our our CEOs are all uh, personally engaged in these topics and and drive. What we need to have done uh, through their companies, and and same time work collaboratively uh, across the industry, uh, so that we do get that unity of effort and unity of message. Let me
2: just amplify that a little bit, because you know Bill alluded earlier to. Um, uh, the evolution of this sector, and I just want to give a ton of credit to folks like Bill and to his predecessor uh, Tom Fanning, who helped to lead the ESCC. You know, even with Bill uh, here on the line, I don't—I I will joke and say we know that the CEOs are not the ones who are expert in this. Although increasingly, I would argue that EEI member company CEOs are really, really extraordinarily fluent uh, in these security and preparedness issues. But what's in imp- Incredibly valuable about CEO engagement is that they set the priorities. They provide, uh, they create accountability. They provide the resources so that their companies uh, can be prepared for all of these threats that we're facing. And I think uh, that the CEOs of the electric power sector get intuitively uh, that. We are critical infrastructure, and that's not just a fun label we put on things. We are critical to the life and safety of the communities that we serve, and we are an apex industry in that other sectors rely on us. So it really is uh, an economic security, national security imperative, and, and the CEOs of the electric power sector have absolutely risen to that occasion.
1: Really, as you say, this being critical infrastructure, I don't know, historically, I don't know, Scott, if your clock goes back that far, but just seeing how candidly CEOs and in industry are are discussing some of the challenges, I feel like many years ago, if there were cyber threats, no one talked about them, but that doesn't mean that the threats went away. So how important is it as really stewards of this critical infrastructure to see so much kind of open engagement on the
2: challenges and the work that's underway to solve some of these challenges? Yeah, you you hit an important word there, the open engagement. I'd be interested to hear Bill's perspective on this, too. I I guess I would say it this way. The electric power sector and its companies have known, you know, as long as we've been around, uh, that there were potential for physical threats uh, and storms were going to impact operations. And as we began to rely more on digital uh, systems, that there were going to be cyber threats, too. It was it, it was. Within the companies, uh, I think there was an acute awareness of the threats that we faced. The shift, in my view, has been that willingness to be a little bit more open about it. And I think that's a sign of maturity. It's not individual companies saying, we've got this under control, nothing to see here, don't worry about it. It's more of a recognition that, yes, there are threats to critical infrastructure. And yes, we as electric companies have a certain uh, role to play, certain capabilities to secure our own systems, but we also need other sectors. We need water to generate steam and cooler system. We need telecommunications to operate. We need transportation and pipeline to move fuels and that there's a government role here too. And there needs to be a whole of community approach to the protection of critical infrastructure. Again, critical infrastructure is for national security. Uh, it is the foundation of the lives uh, and the, that we live. We need to take that that responsibility seriously, and it needs to be with partners uh, in both the government and uh, other sectors. And
1: really, we've been discussing this whole time the importance of having resilience for the system, and that goes back to supply chains, that goes back to planning for when you have that bad day. but. Uh, I think historically you've seen throughout the country and probably world that uh, there's there's always regulators in place. And, of course, that's an important part of the process. Uh, investments are made and approved through open and transparent rate reviews. But I think we're talking more and more about resilience today, and that may not have been as critical a piece of the cost discussion in previous years. Do you think that's changing today, Bill, or, or really how should uh, regulators and consumer advocates and others be thinking about what the value of resilience is?
0: The key to that is open and transparent communication. And you know, we focus these discussions a lot on the collaboration with our federal partners, but we have just as much collaboration with our state and local partners. And in fact, um, we do a lot of drilling with those partners at the local level and the state level. We do a lot of engagement with our fusion centers. I, in fact, was at a recent uh, NARUC meeting uh, where I was with Chris Inglis and uh, Deputy Secretary uh, Turk from DOE, where we talked to a room full of regulators about resilience and the need to invest in cyber. And to your point, the recognition of this issue at the regulatory level has, again, changed dramatically over uh, the last few years. And uh, there's a clear acceptance and understanding that there has to be more investment in in these areas. And, And I liken it to an example, I think, that really brings it close to home that you're right in that When we went out and, for instance, looked to procure transformers, we would look for the lowest cost. And a lot of times that lowest cost would be something coming from China, for instance. And today, now we're looking for that transformer that is the most secure. And it may not be the lowest cost, but it's the most secure transformer that we can get from a Uh, cyber and physical security perspective, and uh, regulators are beginning to recognize that we have to look at these things different, and we have to have an acceptance that, quite frankly, if we're going to move more supply chain into the U.S., that it may not necessarily be the lowest cost component, but it'll be the most secure component. And I think it's pretty clear that
1: customers benefit from, from that outcome as well absolutely there's no
0: doubt that uh, customers are much more aware of security and resiliency, particularly coming out of the colonial pipeline incident that got so much press it's it's interesting nobody had ever really heard of the colonial pipeline and now when you go see regulators they all know about the colonial pipeline and what that meant to uh people and to Scott's point this is, critical infrastructure. If it does not work, then there's immediate impacts. And it's our goal to make sure that those impacts get minimized. You know, many times we look at security topics in isolation, but the truth is we need progress on many fronts to advance security across the sector. And the actions that we talked about today are just really pieces of a larger effort to continue enhancing our, our sector's security and, and resilience and forms where the sector can come together and where we can have these important conversations like the The sectors project with the Department of Energy, uh, the Energy Threat Analysis Center of the Department of Homeland Security's uh, Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, the JCDC, I mentioned earlier, all of those are going to play a critical role in our long term success and and really having these types of opportunities for dialogue and continuing to have a very transparent approach to these things will will truly help us uh, move all of this forward and and make Uh, for a more secure and and safe system for our customers.
2: And and I'll just, I'll add, I I just want to thank Bill for his leadership. We're nowhere without the CEO leadership uh, in this industry because it really has been a driver of priorities and a driver of better collaboration with other sectors uh, and with the government. And his point about resilience is is spot on. Uh, The more that we can help people understand that reliability is table stakes, that's what we have to do, keep the lights on through normal conditions. Uh, But with our regulators, uh, with our other government partners, with our customers uh, and with other sectors, understanding uh, the role that we have to play in creating more resilient infrastructure and the value that that provides uh, to national and economic security. Uh, That's really, I think uh, uh, the next phase uh, of this partnership. And I appreciate all of his comments and his leadership.
1: Ellen Scott, thank you both for joining today's show on this topic and it's really just very timely and for listeners if you want to learn more about supply chain resilience i had mentioned bill's column earlier but uh, we'll make sure that it's available in the episode summary here and that was titled supply chain resilience the energy sector base so thank you both thank you thanks brian and that's our show for today. Thank you for listening and come back next week to hear more from experts and industry leaders who are talking about the innovative ways electric companies are building a cleaner, smarter, stronger energy future for the customers and communities they serve. You can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Electric Perspectives. I'm your host, Brian Real. Thanks for listening.